What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. When you think of children's literature, it's likely that some of the most enduring characters will come to mind. From the mischievous cat in his red and white striped hat to the lovable bear who lives in the Hundred Acre Woods, or maybe even that terrific, radiant, and humble pig who was loved by a spider. Now, all these characters will always have a special place in my heart, but there is another character who burst on the scene recently, while not quite a pig may be found to be just as terrific. One day, while walking home from her karate lesson, Mango comes across a big traffic jam. Investigating the cause, she comes to find that a Malaysian tapir has become lost in a very big city. Mango knows just what to do and rescues the tapir, named Bam Bang, from the scary traffic, taking him home so he can have a friend and adjust to the complexities of the big city. In each of the volumes of this delightful intermediate reader, there are four stories of Mango and Bam Bang's adventures. One of my favorite stories tells of Bam Bang as he tries to find a talent. He goes to a lot of classes, including a cooking class, but nothing really works out. That is until Mango and Bam Bang stumble across a dancing class, where Bam Bang finds that the stomping and turning of Latin dance is just perfect for him. Each of the stories is delightful and filled with lots of humor. Bam Bang is a funny and charming character who is made more delightful as he is rendered in the illustrations wearing all different kinds of hats. The themes of the stories are also tender and great for children. All the stories talk about friendship, working hard, and overcoming fear, which are just the kinds of things that early readers to whom these books are aimed will find interesting. There are also some really great vocabulary words in these books that will serve well to extend the range of young readers' abilities. Along the way, some reviewers have compared Bam Bang to Paddington, another classic children's literature character. And here at Rachel's World, we could not agree more. So if you're looking for a new memorable character to introduce to your beginning reader, we recommend you check out The Adventures of Mango and Bam Bang. Isn't there more to life than just getting a job, paying the next bill, or filing your taxes? If you as an adult want more out of life than that, young students probably do too. So why should their learning boil down to passing the next test, learning to fill out a job application, or career and vocational training? Our first guest, Brad Wilcox, a professor in the Department of Teacher Education at BYU and a literacy expert, believes in the great benefit for our children of going beyond the basics. We can and should help them develop emotionally and spiritually. Wilcox has lived in Utah, Ethiopia, and Chile, serving as an advocate for children and learning wherever he has gone. Here's Rachel and Brad. 
We have Brad Wilcox today with us in the studio. It's great to be with you, Rachel. You know, Brad, one of the things that I think people have a challenge with is that when they think about literacy or even reading and writing, they think about job skills. They think, okay, if I can read and write, I can get a job someday. I can fill out a job application. I can have those kind of basic skills that I need to be employed. I need this to get into university or to get into college. This is the future life that's going to, you know, make me be able to contribute to society. Well, there's no doubt that literacy helps prepare people to make a living. Without but a doubt. it also helps to prepare people to make a life. And that's what we've got to remember. One teacher said to me, why should I teach writing? They're not going to be professional writers. And I said, well, they're not going to be professional mathematicians either, but why do we teach math? She said, well, math is a life skill. And I said, uh, writing is not a life skill? She says, oh, yeah, writing haiku poetry, it's a life skill. Like if the kid doesn't write haiku poetry, he won't be able to get a job. And I said, well, first of all, you have to remember that even if he never writes another haiku poem in his life, it's the thinking that has gone into that that will transfer. Will he brainstorm again in his life? Will he have to revise his thinking again in his life? Will he have to conform to some sort of standard again in his life? Those are the things that transfer. But even more important than those life skills is that by learning to write poetry, he's learning a living skill. He's learning to be more sensitive. He's learning to be more thoughtful. He's learning to pause and see the world instead of just quickly rush by it. He's learning to uh, he's learning to care about things and to care deeply about things. Now, that's what's going to give a child a life. Uh, and so literacy isn't just about getting a job or Get passing a test and jumping a hoop. Literacy is about helping ourselves emotionally, physically, socially, and spiritually. Yeah, you know, I think that word spiritually, some people wouldn't even connect that with literacy, but I see that as a great connection for me because for me, that sense of deep, creative, spiritual understanding is part and parcel of what literacy means. Well, Rachel, I know we're kind of on thin ice here talking on the radio about spirituality because a lot of people see this as one, very personal, or two, something they can completely separate from the rest of life. But anybody who's worked with children recognizes that there is a spiritual side of of our natures and that if that spiritual side is not fed, then it does as much damage as if the physical side is not fed. Both the, the body and the spirit need that that nurturing, that that nutrition, and they need to be uh, to be fed. So I think we don't need to, uh, you know, we don't need to be afraid of talking about spiritual needs. Music fills a spiritual need. Now, some people will say, oh, no, it's just an emotional response. But anybody who's listened to music to the point that a a melody has moved you to tears, a song has moved you to tears, then you know that that music is touching your spirit. And I think poetry does that as well. Do you remember in the play Our Town, 
when the stage manager is having a conversation with Emily and she says, does anybody ever really value life? Does anybody ever really see life every minute? And he says, a few saints and poets, but no, the rest of people just go about their daily life and never really appreciate life for what it is. Isn't that an interesting comment? A few saints and poets, he is saying that there is this spiritual side of our natures, and if we're not careful to feed that, then these kids can miss the, the, the beauty of the world and the depth of relationships uh, too easily. It's so true. I think that that connection to that spirit just makes makes life more rich in many ways. So how can we as parents or people who work with children, how can we nurture that? How can we feed that basic element with our kids? Well, I think one thing is to remember that as children write, they're bringing what's inside out. And so we can engage them in reading, and we can engage them in reading material that is going to uh, help them grow spiritually. But more important, we can encourage writing, even if it's personal writing in a journal, but writing that kind of allows them to bring those deep feelings out. Um, one man who is an author I admire a great deal, his name is George Durant. And uh, he was asked once, long after he retired from working as a university professor, he was asked, why do you keep writing? It's no longer part of your job. You know, you don't have to keep writing. As if it were a chore. And he said, well, I don't write just for my job. I write because, he said, I discovered a long time ago that I'm just a better person when I have a book hatching. Isn't that That's awesome? amazing. I'm just a better person. I'm more thoughtful. I'm more sensitive. I'm more observant. I'm looking at things from different angles. I'm looking for Messages that I would have otherwise missed. I'm living a wide awake life. And I think when we talk about spirituality, that's what we're doing is we're helping children live wide awake lives and not just trudge through the day and trudge through their video games, you know, and just just exist we don't want them to just exist. We want them to live. And we don't just want them to observe. We want them to participate. And so as we focus on the spiritual nature of each individual, then we are allowing, we're giving permission for them to open their eyes and see beyond the surface level. And isn't that what's written in Scripture? Those, with ha those who have eyes to see, let them see. Yeah, that really opens just the wider world and helps children, again, see that broader scope of nature and of, 
other people and even that sense of the more kind of pedantic sense of critical thinking. We really are helping children become holistic people that can then truly participate in life in our democratic society and all of these more broader senses than just getting a job. So how do you think parents can go about helping provide that balance? Well, I look back at how my own parents dealt with this. Um, they were very willing to let me play with children of of other races, of other backgrounds, of other religions. And that would often bring up questions. Well, my friend said this or my friend said that. And then they were willing to talk that through with me. Now, what's happening in today's world? Well, we might be tolerant enough to let our children experience diversity, but where's the talking through happening? See, what about family dinner time, which is when we used to do a lot of talking, and now I see families that don't eat together and families that just watch TV or everybody's on cell phones during a meal time, And I think... If I could just say, families, let's just sit down once a day. If dinner doesn't work for you, make it breakfast. If breakfast doesn't work for you, make it lunch. Make it a bedtime snack. But let's sit down. We have to eat anyway. Let's eat together. And let's turn off the electronic devices. And let's engage in conversation. That allows parents an opportunity to kind of unpack the experiences that children are having, whether that's through I read this in a book or this is what's happening in current events or my friend said this. It allows parents to be able to kind of help children make sense of that. And that way I think we can allow our children to grow spiritually without being subject to every every. Uh, comment or every, uh, you know, extreme that they happen to see, in, whether it's on a TV show or whether it's on the playground. Yeah, I think that's important to remember because I think oftentimes people see if I'm going to have this experience it, and it's contrary to what I believe or contrary to my understanding, my yeah, then it's going to totally take my child on that contrary path. But that's not always the case. It's more of a conversation and allowing the children to discuss it and figure out how it fits in in that wider scope of, of their experience. Great way to end today, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a joy to be able to to visit with you about these things. Thank you. Literacy expert and professor of education at BYU, Brad Wilcox, emphasizing the importance of helping our children develop their emotional and spiritual sides. Next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel talks to associate professor Melissa Heath and graduate student Katie Smith, both in BYU's Department of Psychology, who offer tips on teaching social and emotional skills to children in the home and in the classroom. Parents and teachers can be partners in this endeavor. Here's Rachel with Melissa and Katie. We're in studio today visiting with Melissa and Katie. Welcome, ladies. Glad to have you here. Thank you. 
We're going to talk a little bit today about social and emotional literacies. I think this is a really interesting topic because I think sometimes when we focus on literacies, we focus on communications or things that aren't really these feelings and interactions that social and emotional literacies are. So first off, Melissa, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you would consider to be kind of social and emotional literacies or skills? Uh, Actually, the term emotional literacy and uh, emotional intelligence, they became really popular in counseling and education, both of those, in the 1960s and the 1970s. It started to grow out of people's dissatisfaction for focusing on other things rather than the interactions of people. Education was very much driven by academic achievement in to the point where children's social needs and emotional needs were not being met. So in particular, the term emotional literacy was a part of that terminology that educators who advocated for humanistic education, that was very much a part of their vocabulary. And looking beyond the mere academic achievement, these educators wanted to promote the understanding of human emotions, such as caring, listening, empathizing, things like that. They really stressed the importance of handling one's own emotions and how then we interacted with others. They considered those to be life skills, not just needed for in a classroom, but across the lifespan in any relationship which was in their life. Yeah, that's a really good point that these skills are really life skills. They're not classroom skills. So so how do we address that in school when, when they don't have these kinds of skills? What are some of the things that we could maybe start doing or thinking about in our homes to help kids who may not be as strong in that area? That's a good question. I, I think sometimes parents might think the school is going to do the whole job of educating their child, preparing them for life. And the school, on the other hand, can sometimes also think social skills, emotional skills, that's the home's job. That's not the school's job. But in fact, it's a, a partnership that we together, parents and teachers, Uh, kind of forge the way forward for children. And I think that by reading certain books with children, having discussions, asking them about what went on in their school day or, or what kind of things were happening that they wanted to share and for us to listen. Listening is really important. And then kind of also showing children how it is to be kind how it is to be caring. I think so much in the media today and with video games and technology, we're sort of pulling away from human interaction. And I think it's really important for children of all ages and adults as well to learn how to be a friend, to learn how to be a good listener. Just those kind of things can be taught. It's not something that children come into the world as an infant and they have their needs. They cry when they need something, and it's all about themselves. They're not thinking about other people. So over the lifetime, we actually learn those skills, and those can be taught. I think that's really important, that kind of partnership idea. So, Katie, how would you develop that partnership? What what do you think is essential for helping schools and parents work together to develop these skills in children? Yeah, um, I know in the, the program that we work with right now, we – uh, we pick a, a social skill or a social emotional learning um, concept each month, and the school is aware of what that is, and bo- the parents are also aware of what that is through a newsletter. And so that newsletter goes home, and it says, "This is what we're focusing on with your uh, the students this month, and here's an activity that you can do with uh, with your student, with your child, to promote this at home." And then you can write home to the you can write to the teacher at the school to say, "This is what my child." 
child's doing at home to enforce, uh, to emphasize this social skill. And then in return, you know that that social skill is being taught in the school as well. And so it's kind of a combined effort that we've initiated to make sure that it's being covered on all fronts and that the student's not just being taught it, but they're also being able to apply it at home. So give us an example of one of those activities that they apply at home. Um, So we really try to make it like goal oriented. So it's a family effort. And so saying, um, let's see, for example, if the social skill is um, being responsible, coming up with goals as a family in which they can be more responsible. So uh, putting together a chore list or, um, you know, serving others in the home and just finding those ways in which a family can be responsible together and writing them out and then following up with each other of how are you responsible today? And then the parent then can, you know, take this note that's included with the, the newsletter and send that back home, send that back to the school, to the teacher, so they can see like, oh, this child really is applying the social skill which we've taught them. The one thing that I really like that Katie did in uh, this year that we've done a little bit different is we used to just put one note at the bottom of the newsletter. And we do have families that have several children. And so working with the schools, they said, well, why don't we put some notes on the back so they can cut them out and bring them back? So in each of the classrooms, that's one of the things we're doing this year is the parents will write the note with the child's name and the teacher's name. So then we keep track of which parents are reinforcing their children. And we really encourage them to do that. Then the principal at one of the schools has an assembly each week. He will draw a name out and those home notes go in with the school praise notes. We call them praise notes for when they've done something that lines up with the social skill that we're teaching. They then go into a big drawing and the principal will pull something out and then they have special privileges and uh, just different types of awards and they sell, everyone in the school celebrates. And I think that's interesting. I've, I'm familiar with your research and this, this idea of praise notes is very interesting because I think sometimes we try to correct children negatively and the whole mm-hmm. purpose of this program is to do it in a more positive way mm-hmm. and to make it more empowering. So how do you think addressing these kinds of social skills needs in that positive way helps build better social skills? Mm-hmm. Rachel, that's a really that's a really good question. I think a few years ago when po- uh, positive school behavior became something very uh, prevalent in schools because we were looking at discipline and kids getting suspended and all kinds of very, very negative, punitive things happening to children. And we noticed that those children who were ex- you know, suspended for a few days, um, they would need to then look at future down the line, a couple years later, they would drop out. There was high dropout rates. So schools, in especially in rough communities where um, there's a lot of crime and a lot of drugs and things like that, children were very vulnerable to the forces of the community. So we find that in a school, if we try to, instead of saying what we don't want children to do, we say what we do want them to do and then praise them for that. And the specific praise note says exactly what they saw the child do. They write it out. Or they circle some some of the praise notes will have like little things already on there where they can just circle things. We've done that too. But it, then it gives the parent and the teacher opportunities during the week to then find things specifically that, that they've done that they can praise them for. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it to say we're going to praise you for something we want you to do instead of criticizing for something we don't mm-hmm. want you to do. So Katie, as you've worked with this program, have you seen some successes or maybe some behavior changes in some of the kids you've been working with? Yeah, definitely. Like going into the classrooms, I remember um, the first month we taught them the golden rule with a book called Do Unto Otters. And it's a book about 
otters and rabbits and teaching them to like how they can get along despite their differences as animals. And I talked to a parent the next month about it. And the parent was just talking about how their child came home and was talking with them about the golden rule about doing unto others as they would have you do unto them. So it's not necessarily like teaching them, you shouldn't do this, this and this to others. It's how how can we um, support each other? How can we help each other out and understand each other's differences? And I've just seen that that positive model um, with all of this just be extremely helpful for the kids. And it's uplifting rather than bringing them down. It's helping them realize who they are and who they can be to other people. And I think it's just really made a difference in the school environment in general and just making it very positive. That's a really good point. And I like that sense of modeling and how, how the parents and teachers model that behavior. So, Melissa, how, how can the parents and teachers model this behavior in a more positive way? Well, what we try to do is with the storybooks like the Do Unto Otters, this is one thing that I really noticed. There was one little boy in one of the classrooms. Um, another student actually said, this little boy did this. He had been on the outside in the playground, and he wasn't, um, he wasn't being pulled in to play. And that's the thing that we were working on was including others that month. And so the little boy said, well, when that happened, then we did we went and we formed a new group because nobody wanted the boy to be on their team. And I thought that this was like a second grader. It was I was really amazed at the maturity. And then the little boy who had invited the other boy to play, he basically said in his family he understood how it felt because they have a little brother with a disability and how they and their family are very sensitive about how other people feel and the importance of being kind to others. And it just really – we tried to – to do things, read the story, then talk about what was in the story, and then do specific examples. And in Katie's newsletter, she'll say, you know, families, here's one thing that you can do. Um, Go to the library, pick one of these books, then role play, do some role plays. So we encourage the parents at home to do role plays because we found in the school that's one of the favorite activities that the kids like to do. So Katie, explain to us about role playing. How would a parent go about doing a role play with, with some kids? I think it definitely depends on their age group. So picking good scenarios that they might face on a daily basis. And so for a little kid, you know, maybe a first grader, it's maybe bullying on the playground, if that's something that they're experiencing or they're witnessing or um, they're even a part of. And if the parent knows that's going on, you know, bringing them home and saying, okay, we're going to role play this situation. You know, if it's the mom, I'm going to be picking on your dad right now. As an outsider, as a a bystander, um, what is something you can come over and you can say to me or say to your dad that's going to, you know, make the situation better? So coming up with those real life experiences that they go through and then um, being able to talk with them afterwards and discuss maybe better ways they can do it or things like that. That's a really good strategy. Thank you both for talking about this very important topic today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Melissa Heath and Katie Smith sharing ways to teach valuable emotional and social skills to our children. We finish up the show today with three authors, Andrea Davis Pinckney, Ann Cannon, and Marilyn Singer, who offer some guidance for youth and adults who want to enter the world of writing. I think what has worked for me was when I got that notebook as a child. So to young people or to anybody aspiring to write, I say, 
get a notebook and use it. Write daily and don't worry about spelling, grammar, syntax, thesis statement, all of that. Uh, just write and write daily. If somebody asked me um, to give advice about writing, I would say read, make yourself write to a word count every day or whenever you can, and always end before you're written out. End in the middle of a sentence or a scene or something so that when you start the next day, you know right where to go. Have a little notebook with you, you know, so that you can just write down whatever that sparked. I remember one time I was... um, we had a house in Connecticut, and I was sitting outside. I was just relaxing. I was looking at the sky, and my, my husband always says he uses the word poetizing. And I was looking at it, and I saw this airplane, and it was. Um, I was looking at the, the the trail, and I and I thought of it as uh, stitching. You know, creating uh, the 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 plane was like a needle, a silver needle, creating stitches in the sky and it just came to me that image and I and I was able to write that down. Three authors Andrea Davis Pinkney and Cannon and Marilyn Singer we hope some of what they said will spark some new ideas for your own use as a teacher writer parent or mentor. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.